a bit longer, please do so and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, page 512, I believe, if you're going to use a Bible from the church in front of you. Thank you guys for leading us as we've sung to the Lord and about the Lord this morning. Psalm 119, we, we are going to get started on Psalm 119 this morning, and of course, I won't read the entire psalm. Uh, that would just about take the whole sermon time to do so. Not that it's not a worthy pursuit. It takes me about three miles on my bicycle when I play Psalm 119 uh, on, my, uh, on my phone. So uh, I won't sub- uh, make you subjected to a three-mile bike ride this morning. And we'll just read the first eight verses to maybe kind of orient us to what's going on in Psalm 119. This is God's Word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your, steadfast, your, your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. We know that there is no word like your word. And Father, what we are really hoping and praying for through your word this morning is what we've just sung, that that you, Lord, would speak by your spirit through your word. So help us to that end. May we, as this psalm says elsewhere, may we behold wonderful things from your word, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, William Wilberforce was a a 19th century British politician. His sole aim, what he felt before God was his singular calling as a politician, uh, was to abolish slave trade and slavery In Great Britain. He labored for some 50 years for that cause. Progress was slow and hard to come by. In 1807, after 26 years of laboring to that cause, after 11 previous failed votes, He saw the passage of the Slave Trade Act, which put an end to the slave trade in Great Britain. I would just add parenthetically, you realize that over half the countries in the world today still practice slavery. Then for another 20 years, William Wilberforce fought not just for the abolition of the slave trade, but he fought for the abolition of slavery, period, in, throughout Great Britain and the British Empire. 
He resigned from Parliament in 1926 because of just failing health. And yet he lived long enough to see in 1833 uh, the, the, the act of Parliament that completely abolished slavery in the British Empire. He died three days later. Fifty years he gave his life to such a noble cause. In a journal uh, that he wrote, dated in 1819, he referenced the fact that every morning on his way to Parliament, he walked from his home to Parliament, and he walked through Hyde Park. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but Hyde Park is adjacent to Buckingham Palace. It's a beautiful, lovely park. But he he strolled through Hyde Park every morning on the way to Parliament to begin afresh on that new day, his battle to end slavery. In his journal entry of, uh, of 1819, he mentioned that on his morning walks to Parliament, he would recite and recall and remember Psalm 119. Think about that. Think about what sustained this gentleman in all of the political wrangling for a good cause, the political attacks to at oftentimes what felt like a lonely lost cause. What sustained him was God's Word in general, but Psalm 119 in particular. Well, I tell you that just because I hope and pray my wish is that as we begin a study in Psalm 119, we'll begin now, we'll go through November, we'll take a break and do something, something else in December, we'll jump back in, in in January, and that'll take us probably through March leading on the eve of Easter. So for the next seven months, we're going to be in and out of Psalm 119, and and while this morning, I, it's just going to be a lot of information that I give to us to kind of orient us, to introduce us to Psalm 119, my, my hope in doing so, my hope in this information dump is that it might serve us so that while we gather for these next seven months and spend about 30 minutes each Sunday morning uh, ruminating in Psalm 119 that we might on our own even privately ha- have hearts that wish to engage in the depth and the beauty that's found in Psalm 119. And so to encourage you and I not only publicly but to privately uh, take up Psalm 119. I think my grandkids are going to memorize Psalm 119. So how about that? They'll, they'll come back later and recite it for us maybe. So and I'll be bumbling still in the first couple of verses, perhaps. But So this morning, I want to do two things. I want to talk about the flow of the Psalms in general. I want to do that briefly, and yet I, oh, I could really get lost in the weeds on that one and spend way too much time doing that. But I think it would be helpful to do that. And then I want to orient us to Psalm 119 in particular. So I want, the, I want to see the flow of the Psalms overall and then the focus on Psalm 119 in particular. In general, I would remind us, we touched on this last summer when we were doing Psalms 119 to 135, 
uh, is that the 150 songs uh, that, that, that we have as the Psalms uh, are arranged in five books or collections. And, and while on the one hand, each and every Psalm is, 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 is individually a, a, a beautiful and true um, uh, revelation from God, the very arrangement and the flow of the Psalms is meant to show us even more beauty and more truth. In other words, uh, the Psalms weren't just like, like put individually in like a, like a hat and then just kind of randomly drawn out. And that was the first one, that was the second one, that was the third one. No, there's there is a, a wonderful arrangement to the 150 Psalms. They were Israel's, if you would, hymn book. But these songs uh, are carefully arranged to comprise, if you would, a musical cantata, which is a musical presentation. Just, just think of the famous musical that's going on right now concerning the, the second vice president of the United States, in history, that is. So, so, but the, the, the 150 Psalms are, are that. They, they tra- they're tracing uh, a bit of Israel's uh, history, but they're doing that in five movements, as musicals often do, to draw attention in particular to King David and in particular to the covenant that God made with King, King David, that God made these robust promises uh, to com- to, uh, that he was committed to establishing his own throne through the Davidic dynasty. It's really what the 150 Psalms are arranged to show us. Five movements that, that progressively trace the outworking of God's promises to David. So, David. so in book one, which is Psalms 3 through 41, they trace David's um, ascendancy or rise to power as king. They do it lyrically. They do it poetically. It's sung about history, if you would. Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72, highlight not only David's reign, but his transition from his reign to the reign of his son, Solomon. The third book, Psalm 73 through 89, it's a very dark collection of psalms. They they start with Solomon, but they historically trace the demise of the Davidic king and kingdom and how Israel winds up at the end of Psalm 88 and 89. They, they, they wind up in exile, in captivity. And yet, and yet the fourth book, Psalm 90 through 106, starts with a psalm of Moses, almost a second deliverance or exodus that, 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 that holds out and anticipates the reemergence of a Davidic king who would reemerge as the king and who would rescue his people from their captivity and their exile. And then book five begins at Psalm 107 and goes through Psalm 145. And it highlights a future Davidic king who will rescue his people. At the end of each of those five books, um, so in uh, Psalm 41, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, Psalm 145, each of those books ends with a, a, a very vivid expression of praise to God. 
And yet, as Psalm 145 does that, the fifth and final book, then, then there are five more Psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, uh, uh, that, that, are, uh, that are just reinstatements of, of giving praise to God. There's a beautiful flow here. It's a, it's a historical cantata expressing God's faithfulness to keep His promises to David, to raise up a Davidic king who would rule his people. This Davidic king, therefore, who would be good to his people, and therefore, fittingly, his people respond in praise to, to this king. The other thing I want to mention by way of overall structure is the first two psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 2. Um, they are, if you would, um, they provide the overture of the cantata. And as overtures do, they introduce us to the themes uh, that we are going to find that run throughout the rest of the musical. And so that's true with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 describes the righteous man who loves and delights and knows God's law. Psalm 2 describe the, describes the divine king whom God will, will, will raise up and establish on his throne. And so those two notions, which are derived from uh, really Deuteronomy 17, that, they give, that orient us to that, that, that the righteous man will be God's king. God's king will be the righteous man, if you would. And those two psalms coupled together uh, run as, if you would, rebar throughout the rest of the 150 psalms. So that when we get to Psalm 18, which highlights David's ascendancy to the throne, the next psalm, Psalm 19, is a psalm that extols God's law. Or, for our purposes this morning, when we get to Psalm 118, which extols the ascendancy of a future king of David that rises to the throne. In fact, on Palm Sunday, you remember what they're singing as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem? They're singing, blessed be he he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing Psalm 118. And coupled then with a psalm that highlights God's divine king is Psalm 119 that highlights something of the pertinence of God's law for us, God's word for us. So, 119 is is located in the fifth movement of this musical cantata. Psalm 119, as we move to look at some of the particulars of it, uh, is the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible as far as that goes. It's, in fact, that one, this one psalm, this one chapter is longer than 30 other books of the Bible in general. It, it contains 176 verses. You might have peeked and looked over at the end if you turned a few pages past where we stopped this morning. Psalm 119 is 104 verses longer than the second longest psalm. So it outshines it by a mile, Psalm 78. At Psalm 119, as you might have noticed, there, as you were reading through it, it looks like it's kind of sliced up into sections. It's structured by 22 units or stanzas, which correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You might have seen a little superscription above verse 1 there. It just says Aleph. Well, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
Um, and, and so starting with uh, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, uh, each unit is comprised of eight verses. And the first verse, the first line of each of those um, begins with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is, this is this is not just thrown together on a fly. This, is, this, is, this beautiful structure is crafted to not only aid in how people like you and I could better remember the content of Psalm 119, but it's also intended to underscore that the thing it talks about, it talks about it in a very comprehensive way, in, in a way that underscores the completeness of the message that it is revealing. Other thing I want to mention is, you know, there's different kinds of psalms. Some psalms have more of an emphasis on lament, which expresses sadness and sorrow to the Lord. And some songs, songs or psalms have more of a of an emphasis upon praise, where they just gladly express gratitude and adoration to God. Other psalms are are are. Uh, uh, are very vividly focused upon the Messiah, God's promised deliverer. And yet other psalms uh, are uniquely highlight uh, something of the beauty of God's Word. Well, those are just four kinds of psalms. There's other kinds if we wanted to categorize them all. And if we, I say that to say, well, how, what kind of psalm is Psalm 119? Well, it's so long, guess what? It's actually a medley of, of the four types of psalms that, that I've explicitly mentioned to us this morning. So, here's three or four things I want to say. They, are, they each start with C, uh, and, and then after we finish that, then we'll try, to, we'll try to pull the plug on this thing for this morning. First of all, I want to talk something about the context. Then I want to talk something about the, uh, the confession slash center of this psalm, and then, and then we want to conclude with the concern noted in this psalm. The context. Psalm 119 um, is, it has many features of a lament psalm. Affliction in one way, shape, form, or another is referenced over 50 times in Psalm 119. And while there's not a specific heading at the top of this psalm to, to, to uh, clearly identify the original historical context, I would suggest to you that the original setting for this psalm is probably during the era of the exile. That is, that time in which Israel, and Miz- Israel had been ransacked, Israel had been uh, Jerusalem, the capital, had been destroyed, and, and many of Israel's citizens w- uh, were attacked and taken captive in foreign lands. And in fact, I would suggest there's really good reason to suggest that, that uh, the prophet Daniel may possibly be the author of Psalm 119. At the very least, the themes explored in Psalm 119 are well illustrated in Daniel's life during his time in Babylonian captivity. So, so it's very probable that captivity and therefore suffering, the suffering that accompanies such captivity is the original context of Psalm 119. And that's why we see so many 
features of lament in this psalm. He would say in verse 19 of Psalm 119, I am an exile on this earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Or he would say in twenty-three, verse 23, Even though princes sit and plot against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Or in Psalm 119.51, the insolent, which is the pride, prideful and haughty, the insolent utterly deride me. In other words, they poke phone, phone, phone at me, fun at me. Or Psalm 119, verse 36, my eyes shed tears, shed, shed, shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. There's much sadness expressed here that the psalmist is living in hostile environment. And there's much grief and heartache that he is not just griping and complaining about, but that he is lamenting. He is is expressing his heartache and his sorrow to God. And, And yet, Psalm 119, even though it has features of lament, it is it is not completely dark or morose. In fact, there are strong features of gladness and praise that are expressed, that, that, that are coupled with the suffering and the lament. There is much confession, which is the second C word that I want us to think about this morning. There's much confession of delight and love in Psalm 119. The, the particular Focus or center uh, of Psalm 119, confession and center. The particular confession is because of the center of Psalm 119, and that is the center of the psalm is, is upon the Lord and His Word. Notice even how the psalm began. The first two verses, which kind of are introduction to this, this psalm. Blessed, blessed. In other words, this is not dark and morose. Really, the, the biblical term for blessed, if you wanted to unpack that, really means happy. Happy are those who, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep His testimonies. In other words... The psalmist is is okay, even though he's in a hostile land. The the psalmist is okay because while he's not home at the moment, while he's in a foreign land, he's okay because guess what he does have? He has God and God's Word, which is the source of his joy and his gladness and his happiness and his delight. That says so much about... God's Word. God's Word is a direct expression of His goodness to His people. His caring concern is why He writes to us. And what He writes to us is His pathway to deep joy and true happiness. That, that, may even, that may sound odd because you think, no, I, I, isn't, isn't God's Word a reflection of His harshness designed to limit us and restrict us? Well, that's what the serpent told Eve and Adam in the garden. 
But he's not a reliable source. You talk about fake news. God's word is an expression of his loving concern and, and his goodness to us. It's not meant to limit or restrict us. It's actually designed to liberate us and to release us. You've you got to buy that supposition or everything you read is skewed wrongly. The psalmist gets it. He laments over the location where he's at, but he delights because he's been given the source of happiness and joy in God's word. He says in Psalm 119.35, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. See, Psalm 119 is centered in upon God's Word, uh, at least 169 of the 176 verses uh, focus us upon something or another pertaining to God and God's Word. And so the psalmist grasped that, and then he, so he will say in Psalm 119, verse 47, for I delight in your commandments, which I love. You see, when, when you and I see that God speaks to us, not because he's a harsh ogre in a crabby mood, but because he's a good father who likes to communicate clearly uh, for, as to the safety and well-being and happiness of his children. When you, when you understand that, you think, oh God, I delight in everything you say. Oh God, I, I delight in it because I love everything you say. So his inward desire is for God's word, which is the source of his delight and love. And yet he goes on. Throughout this psalm, he expresses how that inward delight and love translates into his commitments, his actions, his behavior. He'll say throughout this psalm, and I'll just do this quickly for the sake of time, that, that, oh, that, in verse 5, for instance, we've just said, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So he wants to keep God's word. He wants to focus upon God's word. He He said, then I shall not be put to shame, having fixed my eyes on all your commandments. He wants to store up and deposit God's word in his heart. He goes in, in verse 11, he says, I have stored up your word in my heart. He, he, he says in verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. He says in verse 34, he wants to obey God's word. He goes, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. He wants to trust God's word. He says in verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. He wants to learn from God's word. He says in verse 66, teach me good judgment and and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. He wants to sing and praise God with God's word. He says in verses 71 and, and 171 and 172, my lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. 
So this love and delight is translated into lots of of tangible, concrete practices and behaviors. The other thing I would note is, did you notice already? It's like, how many words are in play here to refer to and to describe God's Word? Well, there's at least eight of them that I could see. Sometimes it goes as God's law 25 times. Sometimes it's just referred to as God's word 24 times. Sometimes it's referred to God's rule or judgment 23 times. 23 times as well it's referred to as God's testimonies. 22 times it's referred to God's, as God's statutes. 22 times it's referred to as God's commandments. 21 times it's referred to as God's precepts. And 19 times it's referred to as God's promises. In other words, all of those are, are in a bit synonyms of each other to give description of God's Word. And yet what's true of any synonym is there's also, there's also nuances and, and distinctives of, of each word that overlaps its meaning with uh, another word. In other words, God's Word is referred to uh, in, like I said, well, 169 of the 176 Psalms, and, 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 and yet sometimes it doubles up, and so altogether there are 170 something terms used to describe God's word in these 176 Psalms. Not only does he then express uh, how he wants to use God's Word, how he, he loves and delights in it, and, and a bit of what God's Word is, but, but he also describes a bit of how God's Word practically functions in his life. God's Word is his counselor. He says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors, in verse 24. He sees God's Word as eminently, immensely valuable to him. And in Psalm 70, uh, 119, 72, he says, the, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, you have to do the math in your head. What's the worth of thousands of gold and silver pieces? I mean, would you rather me this morning to cut you a check for a million dollars? Or would you rather to me give you something of the immense value of God's law? You say, could I have both? Well, no, this is my hypothetical scenario. You can have both, one or the other. The psalmist says, I'll take this one. I'll take this one. God's Word uh, gives him direction and insight. He says uh, in, in, in verse 105, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Those are just some that, uh, of how God's Word functions, and we'll unpack more of those as we go through. But, but, but then the psalmist extols some of the benefits of God's Word. We've already alluded to in verses 1 and 2, God's Word produces happiness. Also in verse 1 and 2, God's Word produces holiness. Do you see that? Again, sometimes the lie that we bought is, now look, kid, you're going to have to decide. Do you want to be happy or do you want to be holy? And we need to back up and rethink that because what God in His goodness is saying to us is, I have marked out a pathway of happiness for my people, and yet the pathway runs through the pathway of holiness. They're not in in contradiction or in opposition to each other. Let no man put asunder what God has put together. We see that. 
God's word, he says, gives life and renews life. He says in, in verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. God's word gives him strength. For he says in verse 28, my soul melts away for, for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. God's word helps him to be aware of, of, of his own sin. He says, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life according to your word. God's word provides comfort. He says in verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me according to the promises to your servant. God's word produces, provides wisdom. Your commandment, he says in verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. God's word provides stability, for he says in verse 165, give great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. So this context of lament transfers into the confession of praise because it's centered, this psalm is centered upon God's word. And then one last thing, and then we're done. Uh, A bit of the concern of this psalm. And what I mean by that is, first of all, just by way of setting it up, Psalm 119, apart from four verses, Psalm 119 is is written as a prayer directly to God. The first three verses of this psalm are part of those four verses that are the exception. But then you know, do you notice then in verse 4 how he transitions? He, he, he shifts uh, and, 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 and begins to talk about himself and God directly. He says, you, in verse 4, have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And, and then verse 5, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So he, he begins the conversation with God. In other words, the concern of Psalm 176 is prayer. This is an ongoing conversation between the psalmist rooted in his grasp of God's word and and his response to to God and to his word. Now, now much of of the content of this prayer, this conversation between the psalmist and, and God uh, is, uh, reflects his affirmations of God and his word. He says in verse 103, as he prays to God, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What a, what a wonderful affirmation. He's praying, God, there's nothing sweeter than your word. Or he would say in not, not only as he affirms God's word, but he, but he reflects a bit of his own heart response and resolve, if you will, to God's word. And that's seen in many places. But, but for instance, Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Or how he says in one twelve, I incline my heart to perform your statutes. Or he says in verse 157, many are my persecutors and, and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimony. See, do you see, he's not only affirming what God's word is, but we're also in that prayer. He's also responding to the Lord based upon what God's word is. And, and, he's, and he's saying this is his resolution. And yet, 
And yet there's one more key aspect of this prayer concern that he has. As sure as he knows what God's Word is, as sure as he even expresses how he intends to respond to God's Word, A deep part of Psalm 119 is the psalmist's own recognition of his inability and therefore his need for grace. So he prays to the psalmist. He prays to the Lord. The the very psalmist who would say, I incline my heart to your words is the psalmist who would pray in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. You see, the psalmist is not all just big talk. He's aware of the, the frailties and the weaknesses, the vestiges that remain in his own heart. A heart that on the one hand would say, oh, how I love your law, is the same heart that also says in verse 5, oh, that my ways you see what he's saying? God, help me with this. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He's aware of his need for God to open his eyes that he would see God's word rightly. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. He's aware of, 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 his, of his need for, to be steadfast. He says in verse 133, keep me steady. If you don't keep me steady, I can't keep myself steady. Keep me steady according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. He's aware of his need to, uh, for grace to be delivered from the troubles. It's just in, one, in verse 153, look upon my affliction and deliver me for I do not forget your law. Or he's even aware of his need for grace when he trails off and forgets God's law and disobeys God's law. He says in the very last psalm, in the very last verse of this psalm, it's so amazing that this is the last word, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The psalmist is aware of what God's word is. But the psalmist is acutely aware of his need for divine grace that he might live according to God's word. You and I are in that same boat. We can all talk a good talk. We can, we can all affirm, and it's right to do so, how true and good and beautiful God's Word is. We can all be resolute, and God help us, but we can be resolute as to how we want to delight and love God's law and practically implement it into our lives. And, 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 and yet, when, it, when the dust all settles, the bottom line is you and I do not produce our own obedience to God's Word. God in His good kindness not only gives us His Word, but God in His good kindness gives us the grace that we might keep His Word. And when we go astray from His Word, it's God in His kindness who sent His Son, Jesus, 
who has perfectly kept God's law. God sent Jesus to rescue people like you and I from our waywardness, from our lawlessness. We too are like sheep who go astray. But Isaiah says, the Lord has laid upon him, speaking of Jesus, the sins of us all. Even this morning, the Lord will seek us out and find us and rescue us and draw us to Jesus. So turn and trust in Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how this psalm, we pray, would, would show us the wonderful realities and beauties of your word. Teach us, Father. Cause us to be teachable. And yet, Father, as we maneuver our way through this psalm, remind us of our constant need of your grace that we might do what you say, believe what you state, and follow the direction that you give. Father, thank you for the grace that not only puts us on the right path. Thank you for the grace that returns us back to that path. And thank you that that term grace has a specific name, Jesus. We're thankful for Christ. We're we're thankful for his rescue mission to be the true Davidic king who would reign upon your throne and rescue his people from our sin. We pray this in Christ's name.